again, happy Mother's Day. Um, hope you all have a wonderful afternoon with your families. Um, we're so blessed by you and all that you do for us. This morning we're starting in Corinthians, and if you, if you think to yourself, oh gosh, you're like me. Corinthians is, is this most scathing rebuke slash correction in the Bible. But before we get there, before we get there, Paul, like any good parent, makes a sizable deposit so that he can then make a withdrawal later on. But about 1 Corinthians, I'm going to tell you a story. It's probably over 10 years ago that we had a break-in over in the Altos room. Now, the Altos room is this room that's kind of directly behind the sanctuary. And someone broke in the two double doors. And we didn't realize that the first break-in was more of an exploratory break-in. They broke in. They took, I think, like maybe a TV or something like that. And they just kind of looked around and then got out. And then the very next weekend, it was either the very next weekend or, or maybe the next month, but it was just a little bit of time later. This is prior to the playground being where it was. In a sheer act of redneckery, someone backed a truck up to the double doors over here at the altar room, these same double doors that you see that go out into the courtyard, and they proceeded to fill the back of the truck up with the old ratty couches that were in the altar room. I've never known a church to be broken into that the thieves were kind of doing us a favor, you know. They were were literally within like months from calling up Habitat and being like, can you come get these things? But like I said, in a sheer act of redneckery, they stole couches out of the altar room and I think some lamps and end tables. The funny thing was, years on down the road, there were these two paintings. Bob's heard, you've heard Bob talk about this, maybe two paintings that are hanging up in the front of the altar room. They have been there since Jesus hung them. And we had an art appraiser come in. Come, somebody said, you might want to come appraise those paintings. Those paintings appraised of, Bob, is it north of $30,000? North of $65,000. Can you imagine two rednecks pulling out moth and possibly mice-filled couches filled with the dust of many an elderly person? Halls, menthol, maybe a little bit of pocket change down in there, pencils, scraps of paper, while confidently leaving $65,000 of art that you could put in the front seat of a Hyundai on the wall. As usual, what the church has that is of most value is missed by a worldly perspective. What the church has that is of most and utmost value is missed when we have a worldly perspective. But from a heavenly perspective, this verse is, this, this passage is so absolutely straightforward. Again, combining the same thing that Paul says in Philippians 4.19, for God has given you, and it says later on in verses 7 and 8, every kind of gift and every type of gift, every type of spiritual gift, every kind of spiritual gift, all gifts of the Spirit belong to the church. And so this idea of this richness that we have comes through here in this part as we begin to talk about what is a church. Now at its core, 
At its core, Corinth is talking about what is a church. That's what the book of, book of Corinth is about. What is a church? Who is a church? And the basic simple definition, Bob's going to expand on this. I'll give you a warning. His definition is more harsh than mine. I'm feeling more gracious. I'm good cop. He's going to be bad cop, I guess. Um, but it's, it's that a church is a group of people called for the purpose of Christ. A group of people that are called for the purpose of Christ. And so he's going to give this scathing rebuke to them later on because of all the crazy things that they're doing in the book of Corinth. And, and before we even get to that, you know, anytime someone ever asks you or everybody says kind of has this old nostalgia and it's like, ah, oh, I just wish our church could just get back to the spirit of what those New Testament churches are. You say, have you read past the first chapter of Corinthians? So let me know if you really want that to be your church because problems existed in the church from Jump Street. But Paul says, I want to, before I talk to you about these problems, I want to remind you about who you are, where you are, and what you are, and then all of those things end in Christ. Who you are in Christ, where you are in Christ, what you are in Christ, and then we would say what you have in Christ. And so if you've got your Bible, turn your Bibles, and we're going to look at verse 1. We're going to go through this quickly, verse by verse, so Bob can get to some some, uh, application. But before, before you even just maybe even make a note at the very top of this, notice that Jesus is in every single verse. Either the proper name Jesus, Christ, or he is in every verse in this entire first part. Paul is, Paul is he's saying, listen, he is in there. And so then Paul says, I want to assert my authority that I have the right to be saying things to you. I didn't just appoint myself, by the way, I was opposing Christ, and he knocked me off my horse and said, No, you, Paul, Saul, who were far away from me, now you are going to be my chosen instrument to go and tell the Gentiles about me. And then the next person he lines up with, as he calls, he says, Sosthenes. And Sosthenes, we think from history, was the leader of the synagogue there in Corinth, who was then beaten by the Jewish leaders for his faith. Not beaten to death, but beaten for his faith, known as someone that suffered for his faith. So again, verse 2. Before Paul corrects and rebukes, in verse 2, he begins to remind the church of their identity. And so as you read through verse 2, he reminds them of their identity, their position, and their empowering. And notice that every single one of those things is in Jesus. You were called by Jesus. You were called for Jesus. You were set apart, made holy by him. And, and one of the things that we need to realize, even this is great that we can resonate with the first name of this church but what is our address? Our address is Corinth Reformed Church, 150 16th Avenue. And we're blessed because we're just 16th Avenue. A little, a little, step a little away and we might be 16th Avenue Place Drive Court, Northeast Southwest Bermuda Triangle in Hickory. But we're just, that's our, that's our address. Every church has two addresses, however. And our two addresses are not in the order of importance. 150 16th Avenue, Northwest Hickory, North Carolina. And the second one is Corinth Church in Jesus Christ. That's our address. The address of our church. Our church exists in Jesus Christ. Our church is where he is. Not, we are, not, not he is where we are. We are where he is. He empowers us. He emboldens us. He enriches us. 
And so the third verse comes, and the third verse has kind of a little bit more of an Old Testament flavor to you. And I don't think many of us even pray like this, but the church also it gives, is given a blessing for the church, a blessing in the name of church. And so this day on Mother's Day and Father's Day, I just want to say something really quick to you mothers and fathers, especially those of you that still have kids young enough to where you go to their bedside and you pray over them at night. When you pray over them at night, you pray for them in the name of Jesus. And you as a mother or a father, you have, because you have Christ living in you through the power of the Holy Spirit, you have the power to bless your children in the name of Jesus. One of the most powerful things that a Christian man taught me about 20 years ago before I even had my kids, he says, you bless your children in the name of Christ. And, that, you know, I've said this 8 billion times. Why, why do we use the name of Christ? It's the same reason why when you bust your thumb with a hammer, you don't say, O oh, Buddha. Because there is no power in that name. But there is power in the name of Jesus Christ. And so he blesses this church in the name of Jesus Christ. And so in verse 4, verse 4 literally starts with, with a verb. He says he's so thankful that he can't stop thanking God for the generous gifts. The generous gifts. But the verb right here literally, that he used literally means you have been made so wealthy by Christ. You have been made so wealthy. The verb means to make wealthy. And it's a reminder that then in this verse 4 that you belong to Christ. Later on in Philippians 6, 1 Corinthians, first, what's it, Philippians, sorry, 1 Corinthians 6, 19 through 20, he says, listen, don't you know that you do not belong to yourself, but you belong to Christ for you were bought with a great price. So therefore honor your bodies that is the temple of God. He says you have been bought with a great price. You have been enriched or made rich by God. So wealthy, you've been made wealthy by him. And then he continues on in verse five and he uses another verb in there. And he literally says, you have become plutocrats is the word that he uses. Now the word plutocrat means someone who takes their identity from their wealth. So flip that to be thinking about spiritual wealth. And so that he's saying to, the, saying to the Corinthian church, you are to be those who view yourselves as having been made spiritually wealthy by who you have, where you are, and what you have been given in Jesus Christ. And so there's a, there's a super rich irony that we don't quite get that's going on here in this text. Because Corinth as a community, as a city, was a very opulent metropo- metropolis. You know, a very artsy, a very, you know, come up and kind of, you know, I'm walking around. But the Corinthian church was not that. The Corinthian church was not aristocracy. They were kind of normal people. They were normal people that weren't necessarily the rich, wealthy aristocrats. You know, maybe the people that participated in all of the great artistry and all of the great philosophical debates and all of the great, you know, debauchery that was around them that they could afford with their opulence. They were probably more normal people. But he said, listen, you are plutocrats in comparison to them. You are so much more wealthy because of the wealth that you have in Christ. Verse 6 then, he says, listen, you have been called by God and because you have been called by God, you have been set apart for him. Moms, you know about this. You know about this. You make that entire whole thing of the, even if it's just the pull apart, the pull apart, you know, chocolate chip cookies, and you've got 18 ravenous children, and you set aside at least two for yourself. And they're just for you, and you put them high on the cabinet. And you walk into the kitchen, and someone has somehow figured out how to put a footstool on the countertop so that they can get to your two that have been set apart from you. What do you do? 
Mom turns into the lioness. Right? They have been set apart for you. And so he's saying, listen, you have been set apart jealously, calculatedly, for the good and the love of the Father. He set you apart for himself. So verse 7, we get the same thing, as, as I said before, this happened in Philippians 4.19. Our God will supply all your needs according to his riches. Not according to his stinginess, but according to his riches and glory. So he says then, so with that in mind, live with holy expectation of his return and practice what is in line with your position. So he's told them again and again, here is your position in Christ. Here's what you have in Christ. Here is who you are in Christ. So who you have, where you are, and what you have, let that dictate your posture, how you act. So you would think about it this way, you know, we just had all these kids in prom, prom outfits just prancing all over here the past couple weekends. You know, I don't know any of them that came and rented the tux and spent hundreds of dollars on, on that dress and then immediately went and said, and let's go slip inside in the mud. They went and then acted accordingly with the way they've been clothed. And so he's saying the same thing to them. And then in verse 8, and verse 8 is actually introduces a legal term. This, the verb used is a legal term, and it, it truly means to guarantee. It says, he will keep you. I guarantee that he will keep you. He will keep you strong to the end. Not only in power, but he's also going to keep you in mercy and in grace. Remember, mercy is you not getting what you deserve, and grace is getting what you don't deserve. And it's the part that he's saying, He is going to do this, I guarantee it, because he's coming back. So live in a way that you're expecting his return. And finally, in verse 9, he simply says this. Listen, he says, listen, if God himself has invited you, if God has invited you into friendship with himself through friendship with Christ, if he has done that for you, he will surely sustain you and keep you for himself. God is not keeping you for some purpose. He is keeping you and sustaining you for himself. So where is your dependence? Your dependence is on the one who is keeping you for himself. Not just you have that you have Christ. You have Christ and you have Christ as your friend. He's keeping you for yourself. He's keeping keep for himself. He's keeping you for intimacy. He is sustaining you. He promises it. He guarantees it and you are rich in him. I've wrestled all week with how much to say about the problems in the church at Corinth right up front. Because on the one hand, it's a, it's, it's a fair introduction to the letter. And you typically, when we start out with a book of the Bible, we want to give you the overview of the book of the Bible. On the other hand, the reason not to say it is because Paul doesn't say it in the first nine verses. So do I just start out positive like Paul does and then later come to this other part? But the, the thing is that These introductory nine verses are specifically most powerful because we know what's coming later. We know how many, how deep and many the problems are in the church at Corinth. And yet Paul doesn't mention any of them in the first nine verses. And I've asked several Bible study groups this week, if this were the only thing you knew about the church at Corinth, the first nine verses, what would you know about them? Well, Paul loves these people. They're doing great. He thanks God for them. It's an amazing church. And that's where he starts for nine verses, and I think there's a certain power in that. On the other hand, uh, the reason it's so powerful is because they really were deeply conflicted, and they were being childish, and they um, they were struggling with one another. They argued over big things like... Is, did Jesus really rise from the dead? They argued over little things comparatively, like should we eat food that has been sacrificed 
in the temple. They, argue, they, they ha- had a lack of understanding of the sacrament of communion to the point that they'd get together and take uh, for a, an agape meal to take communion and then elbow each other to the front of the line. Like, you know, what's going on with these people? You know, it's, it, this is a church with a lot of deep problems, and yet Paul doesn't mention any of that in the first nine verses. As you know, next Sunday is our anniversary Sunday, and I thought it'd be appropriate for us to spend some time in Paul's letter to the church at Corinth over the next couple of months. If you've been tracing us through this whole year, you know that we're kind of in the middle of a series of messages on the Apostles' Creed. We did the first paragraph, God the Father, and then the second, God the Son. You say, well, when are we going to get to the third paragraph about the Holy Spirit? Fortunately, that dovetails well into the latter part of 1 Corinthians. So that's where we're headed starting on Pentecost Sunday, which is still a few Sundays away. Meanwhile, it just seems like the right thing to do to to see how Paul talks to the church at Corinth. Oftentimes in the pastor's class, which is our new members class, I start the first day saying, you know, it won't surprise you that around here our favorite book of the Bible is 1 Corinthians, and then I quote from it. And then I realized this past week... I've never preached all the way through 1 Corinthians in 26 years at Corinth. I've preached passages in Corinthians, and there are obvious ones like the love chapter and the resurrection chapter, wonderful passages of Scripture, but I've never actually gone from the first chapter all the way to the end. We're not going to do, you know, every verse, but to selectively sort of say, okay, what does this letter teach us? So this seemed like an appropriate time to do that. And next Sunday, I'll tell you the story about the first sermon I ever preached in this sanctuary, which was the night I was called to be the pastor and why 1 Corinthians 3 is so important to that story. Meanwhile, in the pastor's class, I use these verses to define what the church is. And I use this brief definition. The church is a community Christ calls. I use the first two verses of 1 Corinthians because these words are so powerful there. You may not notice it in your English Bible, but the word call appears in different forms uh, four different times in these verses that we read. Two of them are kind of obvious. Let me flip back here. They're in verse 2 where the Apostle Paul says, uh, to those sanctified in Christ Jesus and called to be his holy people, And then he says, and to all those everywhere who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So what it means to be in a church is to be those who have been called by God and then who call on God because he has called us, right? So there are two other places where it'd be a little bit harder to discover. One of them is down in verse 8 where it's the word blameless, Pastor Paul referred to courtroom language in this passage, and it appears actually a number of times, but one of those is in the word blameless, and the word blameless means in the Greek, blameless. It means blameless. It means you can't blame this person, okay? And the idea behind the word is that you're called into the courtroom on a charge. You're accused uh, by whoever, Uh, the police or whatever, and you're called in to answer a charge, and when you get there, the charge doesn't stick, and you are declared not guilty. You are blameless. Nobody can find fault with you. Your accusers are silenced. 
you are blameless. But the idea of being called into the courtroom and then declared not guilty is the power behind this word. And Paul, when he writes to these Corinthians, again, these ones with all of these issues and problems, he says, I'm going to tell you, Jesus is going to look at you in that day and he's going to say, you are blameless. I find nothing wrong with you and it's because of everything that he has done. The other place where the word appears is back here in verse 2 again, where he says, to the church of God in Corinth. The word church is simply a word that means called out. In fact, in the Greek, it is often used of secular assemblies. In Acts chapter 19, there's a riot in Ephesus, and the riot is described as a group of people who are in an assembly. They are a church if you want to use that word. Same word. This is, a, this is a sort of a mob mentality. So what's the idea behind the word? It's the same thing as when you were in high school or junior high and they had an assembly and everybody was called out of their homeroom or their classroom into the gymnasium or the auditoriums when school, schools used to have them. Everyone is called out into an assembly. That's the idea behind this. So the principle of this is you are not here by accident. You are here because you have been called out of the world into this particular group of people. You have been called to be here. Thus my definition of the church. The church is a community Christ calls. The problem, of course, is when you actually look around the church, our church or another church, and you see a bunch of screwed up people, and it starts with you. So I've expanded my definition just for this particular Sunday. Never used this definition before, and it has to alliterate because of all my other words. So the church is a community of crud, Christ calls. That's who we are. You want to know who we are? We're the word you look it up yourself. You know, Google it. What does crud mean? The church is a community of crud Christ calls. So what's the application of these first few verses of 1 Corinthians? Let me offer you three real quickly. Number one is you need to see yourself through the lens of grace. In Christ, you have been called and loved and forgiven. He has owned you. He has forgiven you. In Jesus Christ, he will keep you to the end. He will declare you blameless. And when you are called to give an account for all of your actions and deeds, Jesus will say, but I took care of all of them. And you need to see yourself personally, individually, with that kind of identity when you have put your trust in Jesus Christ. You say, well, you know, what if I'm not sure or whatever? What about all my sins and problems? Listen, did you notice in these first nine verses, as many issues as there are among the Corinthians, Paul doesn't say, now, some of you this doesn't apply to. Like, I'm not talking to all of you. I'm only talking to those who are living right or who demonstrate your faith in some way. Instead, he gives this blanket. Now, you say, well, doesn't he ever deal with people? Oh, yeah, he deals with people's sins. We're getting there. He's going to confront them. But the first thing he wants you to know is if you don't get this, hold on to this. You are a community of crud declared blameless by God through Jesus Christ, what he has done. Own that about yourself. It's not that you're flawless, it's that you've been declared flawless by the blood of Christ. Second principle here, look down the pew or look around or think about the people with whom you've interacted this week in this church and look at them through the lens of grace. Especially look at the people that you find most difficult to describe as holy choose to see them. You say, well, what? I don't really know their hearts. I don't know if they belong to Jesus or not. Like, why is that your job? 
You treat them, you speak to them, you love them, you respect them as if they are what Jesus sees them to be, which is blameless. You know, there's a good application and reminder for Mother's Day as well, because one of the ways, and, and I, uh, with my children, we all videotaped a brief message to my wife for Mother's Day, and mine, she's not here yet, so I can tell you, because you haven't seen my video yet. Mine is, honey, the older I get, the more I, I sort of see in myself the patterns of my dad, and I know that that's not particularly a nice person, a great person to live with, and yet you still love me, and you love our children, and what I notice about moms is that hardly ever, have you, you've heard those stories about people say like, you know, there's been a family break, and we haven't spoken to each other in years. I won't say always, but it's almost always, and I haven't spoken to dad in years, or my brother, or whatever. It's hardly ever mom, because moms find a way to keep looking at their children through the lens of grace. No matter what they do, no matter how they turn out, they're still loved, and a mom is always going to keep that door open to grace, to relationship, there's something hardwired in them, and that hardwire is very much like God, and it's the way God wants us to see each other. So a mom will go through the different phases of life, and yeah, with the first kid, the mom's going like, I'm going to be a perfect mom, and I'm going to raise a perfect kid, and then somewhere around the toddler years, she's going like, this isn't turning out exactly like I thought it would, and those years progress, and then she has a second kid and a third kid, and one of our families that'll... uh, with the baby this week is having her just had her 10th kid and by that time you're going like I am no longer thinking this is all going to turn out perfect but I am never going to stop loving my kid that's helpful to me as a pastor because I see the flaws of my people I certainly see my own uh, this very week I'm getting emails about do you know what so-and-so said or did. And as a younger pastor, I'd think, I need to fix this. I need to get on this. I need to repair this right away. I need to confront this. As an older pastor, I'm a whole lot more chill. The church is a community of crud. And I'm going like, no, this is a great sermon illustration. (laughs) So, you know what? Just, Just to be able to see people and love them and expect flaws, expect what looks like a long way to go before we're like Jesus and still love people and treat them as if they are blameless in Christ. But then there's a final application I want to share with you, and that is to look at the church around the corner the same way. So we do some things intentionally differently than they do around the corner at Holy Trinity or next door at St. Luke's or over at St. Al's or Viewmont Baptist or the Adventist Church around the corner or First Pres or whoever. But who's to say in God's eyes he's going like, I sure wish they would all be more like Corinth. He's not thinking that. So we do different things well, and they do different things well, and that's what's behind our Saturday night tent revival as part of our anniversary this, this weekend. I wanted there to be one service that's really not about Corinth. We found out there are approximately 150 churches in Hickory. It's our 150th anniversary, so we're going to list all 150 in our program on Saturday night, and we're going to invite them all. We're going to list their founding, something significant in their history, and we would just want pastors and leaders and lay people from other churches to come and join us, not to celebrate us as much as to celebrate what God has done in this community for a century and a half, and I hope you will be a part of that. But it's not surprising when you research our history that this is part of our DNA. This is also part of who we are. The very founding of Corinth took place. We started Hickory's first school, the Free Academy, but it was for kids all across 
the community. The first worship spaces that we had were shared with other churches, and they shared theirs with ours. But one of my favorite stories is about the founding of Claremont College, which today is the Salt Block, and we own that, and most of you know that, and have leased it for uh, 5,000 years or whatever. But anyway, they, so, but it started as a Corinth thing, Claremont College, a college for women, and uh, what I didn't realize till I was researching the history and preparation for this was that the phrase was actually used about that college, we want to be Christ-centered but non-sectarian. And the pastor who was brought to Hickory to start the school in 1880 was a man by the name of A.S. Vaughan, and this is what he wrote about the founding of the college. Let me read it to you verbatim in his words. What is called sectarianism, and by that he means denominationalism, like we're better than everybody else. What is called sectarianism, an evil connected with modern forms of Christian activity, is to be forever excluded. Christ and his precious word form the central principles of all nurture and instruction. Christ in the heart is the key that unlocks the glories of the universe. In other words, what we do is always going to be about Jesus, but he's not our Jesus. He doesn't belong to us alone. He belongs to the wider body of Christ. And this is what Paul says right from the beginning of his letter. I'm writing to you, but to all who call on the name of the Lord Jesus Christ. So that's been a hallmark of this church, and we want to celebrate it Saturday night, and I hope you'll be with us. Because what we share with our brothers and sisters in Christ is far more important than where we differ. What we share is the Lord, Jesus the Christ. He belongs to all of us, and we need to treat those in our brothers, um, among our sister and brother churches in that very way, and see them with the same grace they want to see us. Would you pray with me, please? Father, there are so many reasons this week to rejoice in in the heritage of what has been handed down to us, and sometimes I think we invented something, and I just go back through the pages of our history and realize that you were at work in that far a long time before I certainly showed up on the scene and even before any of us was born. And we thank you for the gift of that heritage. We thank you for the legacy that has been passed down to us. And we pray that in this week ahead, that legacy will be driven deep into our hearts and lives and into the the heritage that we pass on to our children. And we pray that that legacy of grace will be extended around the community, it will be extended down the pew, and ultimately it will be driven deep into our own hearts and lives. Lord, we're a mess, each one of us individually. We are crud, but Jesus died for all of that and rose again to give us life. And it is that identity that we claim afresh today in his name and by his power. Amen.